Hello, welcome to the Friday, August 20th, 2021 edition of the Science and Storm Center's Stormcast. My name is Johannes Ulrich and I'm recording from Stockheim, Germany. Wrote a little diary today about, well, a lightning strike that hit my house or close to it a couple of weeks ago and took out a bunch of network equipment. So wanted to talk a little bit about what sort of worked, didn't work as far as protecting my equipment from lightning. Short summary here, one of the things to consider is that a lot of the surge protectors that you commonly buy, they protect pretty well against an over voltage that's coming through the power lines. What quite often happens with close lightning strikes is that the electric field that's coming with the lightning does induce currents in wires like network cables. The longer, of course, the more sensitive you may be here and then causing overcurrents, uh, over voltages to actually hit network equipment through the network part, which of course is typically not protected by any kind of surge protector. One thing that helped here, of course, was fiber. Fiber certainly prevents uh, lightning strikes uh, from taking effect this way and also from traveling from one device uh, to the next. And it looks like power over Ethernet uh, devices were more vulnerable or switches were more vulnerable than non-power over Ethernet uh, switches with the effect that in one case a switch lost its power over Ethernet capability but was still able to switch packets just without power over Ethernet. And Cisco released a bulletin informing of a critical vulnerability in several of its RV series routers. These are typically more small, medium size business routers. But the problem here is that while this is a critical vulnerability with a CVSS score of 9.8, no patch will be released for this uh, vulnerability, at least for some of the affected routers, because, well, they're end of life, so they are no longer supported. However, if you have one of these routers sitting around, there's still something that you can do to protect yourself, and that's disabling universal plug and play, which is the feature that's being exploited here, and certainly a feature that I would highly recommend you disable Anyway, the purpose of universal plug and play in a router is typically for devices on your network to automatically open up ports, essentially disable firewall rules on the router. It's sometimes used, for example, by webcams and the like. Well, the protocol itself doesn't really have any authentication per se and such, so it's not typically something you want to have where anybody, any device on the network could adjust firewall rules at will. So don't worry if your router is affected or not, disable universal plug and play and double check if your router is end of life, you probably do want to replace it in the near future. And back in April, Microsoft's uh, security research uh, team published a blog post that they called a bad Alloc. And what it referred to was a number of vulnerabilities found in IoT devices that relate to bad memory allocations and the 
functions that are typically included in these operating systems uh, C runtime libraries. We have now the latest example of one of these vulnerabilities and that's in BlackBerry's QNX operating system. Now, if you're still associating BlackBerry with the old uh, cell phone slash early smartphones, that's not what this is really about here. BlackBerry QNX is a real-time operating system that's often used in embedded devices and is in particular prominent in medical devices. And it suffers from a vulnerable C runtime library. Now, exploitation and vulnerability here is a little bit tricky. The vulnerability is in the operating system, but it is being exposed by software that is actually using this particular function, this C alloc function to allocate memory. And if you have any kind of service that accepts network traffic running on a device that does use a vulnerable version of BlackBerry QNX, then an attacker could use that service to exploit this vulnerability if the service does use this CALOC function. So a number of dependencies here, but it's probably safe to assume if you are using QNX on any of your devices, if these devices are exposed to the network, then you are likely vulnerable and probably should patch or make sure that the device cannot be accessed across the network. And it's Friday again, and uh, with me today is another Sansor EDU student, uh, Mark Morosinski. Uh, could you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, hi, I'm Mark Morzinski. I'm a SANS STI student. I'm also a principal program manager at Microsoft in the identity division. So we work on uh, Active Directory, Active Directory Federation Services, and Azure Active Directory. And your paper really just no abuse, but you did sort of at work here. Uh, so can you explain a little bit what your paper was about? Yeah, my paper was about uh, trying to give some guidance around decreasing attacker dwell time in Azure AD. Um, the cloud identity providers are getting attacked pretty frequently. This is probably not news to anyone that listens to this podcast. So um, the paper built on some security operations guidance that myself and a bunch of other people here at uh, the identity team helped make. If you go to aka.ms slash Azure AD SecOps, we have a pretty detailed list of things for defenders to start monitoring. And my paper was basically, if I followed this guidance, would I be able to reduce the attacker dwell time and pick up on some of these common attacks? So that's, I think, really important because you know, not only do we rely on cloud, like you know, for our applications and such, but in particular you, know, you with the identity team, uh, you really sort of are in charge of who can access and not access uh, a vast number of organization systems. So that must be a pretty big responsibility on you here. Uh, out of your paper, like you mentioned federation, I always thought it was sort of an interesting aspect of this. Um, mm -hmm. What are sort of, what's of the one thing that people really need to understand before they sort of sign up for that and, and take advantage of this from a security point of view? Um, from a federation perspective, I mean, you really have to, like, I think people today are really good at, from defender perspective, they understand the what can what bad thing can happen to you if you lose control of your domain controllers, right? Like everyone understands, like if something bad happens to my Active Directory, like I'm in real trouble here. Uh, people need to take that same 
point of view when it comes to their federation providers. And that could be something like ADFS on-prem or Ping Federate on-prem or their cloud identity providers like Azure AD or, or GCP or something like that. So um, it's super, super critical because if you're able to get a hold of those types of things, you can really impersonate anybody and send claims around. I mean, it's it's like really the keys to the kingdom on a lot of this stuff. So identity is super, super crucial for uh, getting access to resources. How big of a part here is that multi-cloud? You just mentioned GCP, and I want to pick up on this. I don't want to make this just an Azure kind of uh, podcast. But, sure. Uh, uh, in the operability, that's sort of a little bit of promise of some of the standards that are being developed here. Uh, do you think in the operability kind of makes things more complicated, particularly from a detection point of view? Uh, it, it, well, does it make, uh, yeah, maybe a little bit. I mean, so Azure AD supports all the open standards like SAML and OpenID Connect and OAuth and things like that. So we're, we're seeing a lot of customers actually, you know, use that as their kind of identity control plane to then, you know, that they come through there. And then it gives them access to AWS or GCP or any of those other different cloud resources and cloud providers. Um, it, it is a little more complicated because now you have more things to be looking for and monitoring you know, things in the cloud. But it does give you a single point of, of focus and control to really, really monitor those identities to ensure you know, the access is correct. You're doing the proper authentication and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's a little bit of both. I mean, it does, you have a lot of things to monitor, not because you're using multiple clouds, but it does kind of funnel things into one spot, especially from an identity perspective. Now, uh, one of the principles of what I always talk about in security is of secure by default. When you're unwrapping, you know, in the good old days, your Windows license, you install it, and uh, you set it up, you know, Microsoft started like with default firewall configuration, things like this. Um, what are some of the equivalents here in the cloud space? Like if you're offering a service like identity, uh, what are you doing here to make the system usable by default, but also secure by default. Yeah. So there's a feature that's on by default on any uh, new tenants that are created. And you can turn this on any of your tenants, which is called security defaults. And it basically does a lot of the recommended security practices. So things like requiring users to register for MFA. It does the risk-based MFA type of behavior. So when somebody logs in, maybe they're coming from somewhere we've never seen them come before or coming from a new device or things like that, we will prompt them for MFA. It blocks the legacy protocols, which are some of the things we see that are very common from a password scraper technique. So that's something that's available to all Azure AD tenants that are, it's on by default, depending on how long ago your tenant was created, but you can turn that on. And then uh, for a lot of enterprise customers that need more granular control to say maybe I can't block legacy authentication because uh, I have some application that was written in 2001 that you know is doing legacy authentication. I can't block that. Uh, we have different features in Azure AD Premium 1 and Premium 2 that lets you get more granular in terms of I can exclude certain things, I can include other things, that kind of stuff. So, But by default, uh, security defaults is a, is a great way to get started and it's on by default for any new tenants. And of course, you know, these days, one of the big problems sort of is you know, phishing. And you know, I don't know, I think uh, half or more of the fish that I see are something Microsoft related. You know, my Outlook yeah. 365 and such. Um, anything you can recommend there, anything you're doing already to prevent the like, you know, credential reuse or uh, like even if it's not your account that's getting compromised, they get the credentials somewhere else. Uh, so anything people can do for that? <laughs> Yeah, so um, if you have on uh, Azure AD Connect is, is the main way for most customers that are, are syncing their 
Active Directory users. So most customers are in this hybrid state where they have both Active Directory and they have Azure Active Directory. So they're using Azure AD Connect to sync the identities from on-prem AD to Azure AD. And there's a feature of that, which is called password hash sync. And I talked about, I've talked about this a lot across different conferences and stuff, but basically that will sync the on-prem uh, hashes of the hashes. And we, it's all it's our documentation if you want to get into the weeds on it. And basically what we do is we'll look for the clear text username and passwords that may have been exposed from a phishing or maybe a password spray or something else. And if we um, find those, we run them through the same hashing algorithms as the hashes that are stored in Azure AD, and we will alert you as an admin that says this is a leak credential for this user, and the user will automatically go to a high risk level. So if you have any automation in place in terms of getting risk state of the user, or if you're using um, identity protection, you have a risk policy that says anytime a user goes to high risk, we can block them, or we can send them through a uh, password reset flow where they have to do MFA and then reset their password. Um, that stuff all gets detected um, if you have password hash sync enabled in your Azure AD Connect. So that's that's pretty interesting also that you're really just setting the risk level, and then it's up to the user to the organization to decide what to do with that risk risk level, or is that sort of a little bit of the philosophy here? You're not going to block anybody unless uh, the administrator specifically configure that. Correct, because it, it depends. I mean, I have some customers where they just they actually want to cause some user friction there, right? They want to block them from getting access. They want to have their IR team go figure out what happened because the risk level of the user is how confident the system is that the account has been compromised. So um, I've had one customer actually where they had a high risk user. They came in, they did their IR, they found it. It was for a service account. So it was kind of very specific. And they thought they found some stuff. They cleaned it up. And then uh, about two months later, that same user showed up as a, as a high-risk user again with another leak credential because whatever they thought they initially got, they actually did not get it all the way out of their environment. So um, some people like to do that where they want to really get in and, and dig in. Other places say, no, like let's let the user self-remediate, which is also a good strategy as well to let them do MFA, reset their password and just go on. And they kind of assume, you know, they're going to get fished or they, maybe they use their credentials, you know, they use it for their, their work credential at the p- local pizza place and that pizza place got popped. So now their credentials got exposed. So just reset the password, right? So yeah, we give that choice to you as the admin. You can kind of pick, do you want to cause a little bit of user friction and you want to do your incident response process and then go in there and self-remediate it or, or remediate it, or do you want the end user to be able to self-remediate? So that's pretty cool. Uh, now, uh, what I really thought was interesting about, about a paper because it sort of came from you from an insider. You, know, so you, you really, I assume, sort of visited Azure AD in person and... Um, Yep. So so it work kind of. Yeah. But uh, what's next for you? What uh, uh, what are you trying to get running there and up next there? Well, we're always encouraging people to please MFA your admins as well as your end users. So that's we still have quite the gap of number of people that have actually configured MFA for their environment. And then the next steps there is kind of moving to more of a passwordless based credential. That's things like hello for business for the end users, which gives a really good end user experience, but also um, a secure authentication, uh, authenticator app for your mobile phones and your non-Windows devices, and then FIDO keys as well is also really, really good. And we're kind of continuing that as part of like your overarching zero trust type of you know architecture. How are we moving our environment towards that and kind of moving to those types of principles and concepts? Yeah, great, Mark. Thanks uh, for joining us here. And uh, that's it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. The link to the paper will be in the show notes. And talk to you again on Monday. Bye.